This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. You're listening to C-Suite Success Radio with your host and executive coach, Sharon Smith. If corporate success is your goal, C-Suite Success Radio offers you informative interviews with experts that will help you shorten your learning curve and accelerate your momentum to higher achievement. C-Suite Success Radio makes it simple and easy for you to tap into the wisdom of other successful business people who know the path you're traveling. If you're ready for success in corporate America, welcome to your new home at C-Suite Success Radio. And now, time for your host and C-Suite Executive Coach, Sharon Smith. Welcome to this week's episode of C-Suite Success Radio. I am your host, Sharon Smith of C-Suite Results. Each week we focus on success, a word we all know and something we strive towards, but not a word that's easy to define. All of our topics and guests are aimed to help you achieve the goals you have set for your organization and for yourself as a leader, but more importantly, to help you accelerate the pace of your success. On today's show, we have Michael Houlihan, co-founder, former president and CEO of Barefoot Wine, consultant, speaker, and New York Times bestselling author who shares proven and practical strategies and tactics based on his own experience building a mega brand from the laundry room to the boardroom of the world's largest wine company. Michael routinely appears on radio, podcasts, and television outlets, including ABC, NBC, CBS, Fox, and Bloomberg. And his articles appear in many national publications, including Forbes, Investors Daily, Entrepreneur.com, Inc., the business journals published in 43 cities, and the C-Suite Network. New York Times business bestseller, The Barefoot Spirit, is now required reading in more than 50 schools of entrepreneurship. Let's listen to the conversation I had with Michael, learn about The Barefoot Spirit to help you gain the edge you're looking for. I am so excited to welcome Michael Houlihan to the call today. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. I am really honored to have you. I love what you've been doing in your past life with Barefoot Wine. I love your message that you're talking about today. And so I'm really excited to have you tell our listeners more about what it is you're working on now. And we're going to then work our way kind of a little bit backwards into the Barefoot Spirit and some entrepreneurial mindset topics that I think are just absolutely phenomenal. But talk to us about what you're working on right now. What's going on with Michael? Well, we're, we're involved in a really incredible project right now that I'm very excited about. Uh, to my mind, it hasn't been done before. But what it is, is uh, it's, it's taking a business book. And you know how boring business books are, right? They're very patronizing and they're set up like a textbook. Here's the three things you got to do, the five things to never do, the 28 things your customer wants from you. And you're falling asleep by number four. Um, and we said, well, how can we make this more interesting? So we got this idea of making it a theatrical drama. Wow. So you have skits. This is kind of like what they had in the 1940s before television. And it's kind of like what uh, Prairie Home Companion had, which is a series of kind of like radio uh 
theater uh, dramatic uh, depictions of, of some point or some moral or what have you. So what we're going to do is we're going to take our New York Times bestseller, The Barefoot Spirit, How Hardship, Hustle, and Heart Built America's Number One Wine Brand, and we went through the book and we found about uh, 27 or 30 characters that were like individual characters that that have relations with each other. They have these conversations, they have arguments, they're surprised, uh, they do all kinds of things back and forth. But by just being a fly on the wall and listening to them, you learn more than you do if somebody was saying, now here's the point, now never do this, always do that. So we thought it would be much more entertaining. And so many people these days are on buds, whether they're jogging or whether they're commuting. Uh, you know, they used to think video was taking over, but you're not going to watch a video while you're driving. And so people tend to be listening now and audiobooks have become very popular and podcasts especially as you probably know. So we're excited to do this. We're going to do a dramatic offering of the Barefoot Spirit on audio. I like this. So instead of just having someone read the book as most ebooks are, you're actually sounds like you're going to turn it into more of a dramatic reading with a script versus someone just doing the, the narration, like literally reading the book word for word. Exactly. So there will be a narrator that will take you from one skit to another. But once you get to the skit, the skit will have like four or five actors, all with se separate voices. And, you know, you'll be able to recognize, oh, this is so-and-so from the big chain store. Oh, this is Michael or this is Bonnie or whoever, you know, the, the characters are, the protagonists. And then after the skit, we have another section which we call Conversations with Michael and Bonnie. And this is kind of like a Monday morning quarterback with 2020 vision where the narrator uh, interviews Michael and Bonnie and says, now in that last skit, such and such happened and so-and-so did such and such. You know, why did that happen like that? Or what were the implications there? And so you get this kind of, you know, reinforcement of the point that was made. And then we go on to the next one. So there's about 12 different skits in the audiobook. So we're really excited to be able to be the first, we think, to do a business book in this kind of entertaining fashion. What I think is different about it, there are lots of business books I've read that were written as a story versus a, you know, and you're supposed to take from the story, the lesson, right, versus the 23 things to do step book. But I've never heard it done and then rewritten into kind of a dramatic, you know, a theatrical production. It's still, when you're reading it or listening to it, it's still somebody just reading the book, even though the book is more of a cast of characters. This is, this is definitely for me is the first time I've heard someone going this route. And I think it sounds fascinating. Well, we're looking forward to it, and uh, we want your listeners to know that it will be out in the fall, Great. and it's going to be called The Barefoot Spirit. It's going to be on audio, and it'll be for sale every place audiobooks are sold, and uh, we're really excited about it. It's, it's just a real gas. You know, we've got Ed Asner playing the part of a snarky supermarket buyer who turns down barefoot the first the first time that we tried to make a presentation to a major supermarket with this brand that is now the world's largest brand. He turns it down. And uh, so but he winds up being the hero because he says why he turns it down. 
And in the in the process of telling us why he's turning it down, he gives us a real education into the whole marketplace. And uh, we wind up building barefoot on his criticism. So this is obviously based on yours and Bonnie's experience in building barefoot. Absolutely. Yeah, it's so this is the story of the wine that's in your fridge. And tell our listeners a little bit. Everybody knows Barefoot. Everybody knows that bottle, the colors. I was actually at a resort in the Poconos this week. You'll be happy to hear this. Their only wine that they were really selling was Barefoot. That was their that was their wine. Um, so it was all Barefoot. And, of course, I recognized it. But for those who don't know, most of us don't really know the characters behind the brand. So tell us a little bit about Michael and Bonnie, whether you want to tell it to us from that third-person perspective as a storyteller or from the I am Michael and Bonnie is perspective. Give us a little bit more insight as to who the two of you are and maybe even just a snippet into how did you end up starting a wine, like a wine company? Where did that come oh, from? Oh, this is... Yeah, this is a great story. So, you know, I guess it's kind of a love story. But, um, you know, Bonnie came from Portland and I came from San Francisco. And I came north into the wine country and she came south into the wine country. And we both moved here independently. We didn't know each other. But, we, you know, we like the lakes and the rivers. We like the ocean. We like the redwood forests. Uh, you know, we, we love the rolling hills. Uh, and it was just the opposite of where we were living, which is urban environment. So we're both urban refugees. But, you know, we're still urban enough to want to go out and dancing. So we both wind up going to the same dance club. And uh, I meet her there. And we hit it off and we wind up uh, staying together for 35 years from that night. Wow. And after we'd been together for a year, she comes to me and she says, you know, Michael, I know that you work as a business consultant and you help companies get things done through the government. Um, how do you think you'd be at collecting a bill? And I said, well, what kind of a bill is it? She says, I've got a client. I'm doing office work for him. And I noticed that he's owed about $300,000 for grapes that he's been selling to a winery that hasn't paid him in three years. And I said, well, you know, doesn't he have a contract? She says, no. I said, oh, my God. Well, I'll go over and talk to him. So I go over and talk to him. And when I get there, they declared bankruptcy that day, so it didn't look good for the home team. But I'm able to negotiate goods and services in a trade. So they agreed to give us bulk wine and bottling services in lieu of cash. So, I mean, we're happy to get anything at this point. So we come back and we say, hey, you know, we've got a trade. Uh, we've got wine and bottling services. We can put it in a bottle. We can slap a label on it. We can sell it. We can pay off the debt. You know, how hard could it be? We thought, yeah, right? How, hard how could long, that be? how long could it take? <laughs> I love stories like that. <laughs> so that's, that's how Barefoot gets started. And how long did it take before you got into that first grocery store? Oh, it took about, uh, it took about two years to get into the first grocery store. Um, the first time that we went to a grocery store was right after we bottled it. You know, we were so naive. We thought, oh, well, we'll just sell it at a grocery store and that'll be the end of it. <laughs> and the guy in the grocery store says, 
Hey, I, I can't put this in. He says, you know, you guys, you put a foot on the label, you know, you're, are you making fun of wine or whatever? You know, nobody's ever seen anything like this before. And, you know, things were pretty straight and stayed in those days. And, and uh, people weren't having fun with wine yet. Barefoot is the, is the brand that gave the winemakers permission to have fun with wine. And um, in those days, we were up against, you know, a completely male-dominated uh, buyers. All the supermarkets in the United States had male buyers. But our wine was really designed for a 37-year-old female who wanted a wine that was a real dependable kind of staple. You know, Tuesday night wine, $5.99, tastes the same from year to year. You know, just the opposite of the vintage business. But the buyers at the time didn't recognize that that was 75% of their buyers. They just didn't recognize it because they thought it was, a, you know, a male, you know, good old boys thing where you sit around and you talk about vintages and, you know, mid notes and <laughs> say a few words in French and make a big deal about uh, the vintage. Um, whereas, you know, the, the woman wanted to have a wine she could have every day and it tastes the same, right? She would serve her family. So it took us a long time to convince the buyers that there was a market for this about maybe four years. The first supermarket took it in two years, but it was really four years into the project before we had enough acceptance that we were in all the supermarkets in California, Oregon, Washington, and Hawaii. And then we began the long and arduous journey across the United States. And of course, every state has different laws regarding alcohol beverage. You know, in New York, one license for one person, right? But in South Carolina, you can have one license and you can have 200 stores, you know, that, that are selling the brand within, within the same management system. So it was a real challenge for us to learn everything that we had to do. And it humbled us. And we learned a lot about business. We learned how to hire people. We learned how to incentivize people. We learned, you know, basically what people want. You know, you think you come up with a good idea like, okay, here we are. We're going to have the best wine at the best price. You know, $5.99 gold medal winner, you know, slam dunk, right? Forget about it. You know, the guy you're talking to doesn't care about that. What's interesting about the journey is, you know, and the journey was a 20-year journey. Uh, when we finally sold Barefoot, um, we were in every state in the nation. We were in 28 foreign countries, and we were growing rapidly. Uh, we had received the Hot Brands Award two years in a row, uh, and we were very fortunate to get an acquirer who uh, wanted to hire us back to tell them how we did it so that they could keep the brand integrity intact. And now it is the number one wine brand in the world. So there's so many questions I could ask you if I had hours to spend on this conversation. <laughs> but unfortunately, I don't. So I'm going to go to the question I think is most relevant to our topic of, of success on this show. If it took you two so you didn't even go out with the idea that I'm going to be a, a wine owner or I'm going to, you know, be a businessman around wine. You went out to collect a debt. You ended up with, with this product and it took two years for a store to say yes. In that two years, what was it that kept you and Bonnie going? Why didn't you guys look at each other and say, okay, maybe this, it isn't going to work and let's just move on. Well, like I said, the first guy uh, who's being played by Ed Asner in our book 
says, I can't take this. Nobody's ever heard of anything called barefoot. You got to put $200,000 into advertising before I touch it. And, uh, you know, we didn't have any money. We had no money for advertising. And so uh, we had, he said, and we said, well, what are we going to do? You know, we bottled it all up for you. And he says, well, he says, I guess you're going to have to sell every independent store and every mama, papa, corner grocery store and restaurant because the chains won't touch it. And neither will any of the box stores because it's just not a household word. And so here we were, you know, with all this inventory and we had to sell these little uh, mom and pop stores and whatnot. And uh, they, you know, they had the same problem that the big guys had, right? Which is nobody's ever heard of this. So then we had to figure out how we were going to get customers to come in. <clears throat> and ironically, about that same time, we got a telephone call from a from a, a group that is trying to raise money for a kids after school park. It's a neighborhood group, and they want money from us. They they actually asked us for fifty thousand dollars. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, we had to keep from laughing on the phone. And we said, hey, we don't have any money, but we can give you wine for your fundraiser. Maybe it'll loosen some people up to write a bigger check. Or, you know, maybe you can auction it off and, you know, take the money and buy a swing or a slide or a sandbox. And they said, okay, they took it. We didn't hear from them. But guess what? Sales in their neighborhood took off. How interesting. All the stores. Yeah, that were around that fundraiser took off. And we realized that supporting our community, we gave the community a social reason to buy our product, which was stronger than anything else. And and when we saw that taking traction, we looked at each other and we said, you know what? This this barefoot's got some legs. We're gonna make it because look at these communities supporting it in these little independents. And sure enough, after a while, so many independents had it uh, and were selling it that the chains had to take it. That's really fascinating. I could just see so many people listening and thinking to themselves, I would have given up on that a long time before, you know, anything anything went down or even would have given up on that before I started because I never planned to be going to the wine business. So I think this, you know, the point of that story is is so many is very deep. It's very layered. Um, and appreciate well, it. Thank God. Thank God for the phone call from, you know, the right. neighborhood association. Right. <laughs> well, I think that in and of itself is another lesson that a lot of people forget is that opportunities are everywhere. And oftentimes we don't see them as opportunities. Right. We don't. And even after the fact, we may not see it as an opportunity. It could be a year later or we may never actually have all the information that that tells the whole story. But there's it's incredible how in in every little moment in detail and interaction with somebody, something is is possible um, when you're you know, when you have the right mindset, at least. Yeah. Amen to that. It's incredible. OK, I want to spend time talking about the Barefoot Spirit and the book and, and the point of all of that. And there's a reason that the folks who bought Barefoot brought you guys back in to keep that brand um, culture alive. There's a reason for that. I can't remember what it was. Did you say that you'd had zero turnover within Barefoot over a period of time in terms of employment? Yeah, we had zero turnover for the last 10 years of the business. Wow. The people who acquired us said that they wanted to hire us to get this, keep the quote barefoot spirit alive. They used the term. So they were referring to the entrepreneurial spirit, but the entrepreneurial spirit the way we did it at barefoot. So they wanted to know what the secrets were that we were doing that was engaging and empowering our staff 
and our community and mobilizing the kind of success that we actually achieve. We taught it to them and we said, you know, this is a great name. So we named our book The Barefoot Spirit. And today we are authors. We, you know, we write for several different uh, online uh, magazines, including entrepreneur.com. Uh, and we write about the barefoot spirit, which is, which is how do you give your people the spirit, you know, that gives them the motivation to come up with good ideas, to solve business problems, to be positive, to share information. You know, when five o'clock came at our business, nobody looked up. They just kept working. And, and the way we did that was because the way we treated people, the way we treated them as employees, the way we treated them as vendors, and the way we treated them as bankers and lenders, and the way we treated them as our customers. You know, business is really a bunch of different relationships, and it's relationships with people. And when people are treated properly, believe me, they want to see you succeed. They become part of your success. And so for us, the barefoot spirit is just a big umbrella statement for all of those little things that we did that made the difference. I love it. We can't go into obviously all of them, nor would I want to. I want people to read your book and listen to your drama that will be coming out in the fall. So we obviously don't want to go through everything here today. But I would love you to come up with maybe two or three items within the barefoot spirit that would be applicable to somebody that is truly an entrepreneur and maybe starting their business like you guys did from the ground up and are trying to figure out how do I get this started, but would also be relevant to a larger organization who wants to reduce, maybe reduce turnover or wants to be more um, nimble, maybe is the right word, or mm-hmm. agile in how they do things and have their employees be able to react and um, contribute, right? Contribute in a more creative way, I think is where I'm going with that, because that's what I think of when I think of entrepreneurial. Is there one, two, maybe three, no more than, because we don't have that much time, and I know these are going to be excellent, um, ideas from Barefoot Spirit that you think would be relevant to the entrepreneur and the business owner, like the bigger business owner? Well, yeah, absolutely. So uh, we don't have a lot of time, so we'll, we'll, we'll talk about some philosophical things, you know, the mindset. Uh, the first thing you have to do is realize that the entrepreneurial company culture is based on sales and that your customer is really at the top of the pyramid. And then right under sales comes not the CEO, the CFO, or the vice president or any of that stuff. What comes is the salespeople. Salespeople come right underneath the customer because they're the ones who talk to the customer every day. And also right next to the salespeople come the customer service people because they know everything is wrong with your product and service. And so then comes everybody else. So the first idea is what we call the customer-centric idea of the two-division company, which is all companies really should only have two divisions. One's called sales and the other one's called sales support. And everybody who's not in sales is in sales support. So the first thing you want to do is to make sure that you have a meeting maybe every 90 days, maybe every 180 days where you bring in your sales and your your uh, your customer service people and you put them up on the stage 
And then you put everybody else out in the audience. And I mean the lawyer, I mean the receptionist, I mean the CEO, the CFO, the VP, the whole alphabet. And they sit there and they listen to what the people who are talking to the customers are saying about the competition, about the customer experience, about their level of satisfaction. That's how you will keep your products relevant. So then the second idea besides the two-division company is what we call the difference between need to know and know the need. So know the need means that you actually tell your people what it is that your problems are. So if you have like a problem, you know, getting into a store or you have a problem with a customer or you have a problem with competition, you tell your whole staff about it and you ask them their opinion. A couple of interesting things happen. First of all, they are flattered that you give, a, you know, you can say a it. hoot you, <laughs> that they give you give a hoot about them and that you recognize them as having a brain and that they can that they can be involved in these high level decisions. And so they do. They come up with great ideas. You know, we had a problem where, you know, we were on the bottom shelf and in a 600 store chain and uh, we were happy to be in there. But if we didn't show progress in 180 days, we'd be out of there. But nobody looks on the bottom shelf. So one of our staff people came up with the idea of coming up with bare footprints that would be decals that we put right on the floor and walk people up to the barefoot on the bottom <laughs> and people and those went up all over the country and then the third thing besides know the need and uh the two division company is is just plain uh acknowledgement and you don't just acknowledge people by saying good job jim you write an email and a, you copy it to the entire staff the entire team and you say, you know, Jim was instrumental in cutting our budget this year. He did such and such and made this much advantage or came up with this great idea to solve this problem that we have in the marketplace and we're using it all over. Thank you, Jim. Now, the people who, first of all, Jim knows that he needs to do more of that to get more of that kind of acknowledgement. And people work for acknowledgement. It's their number two reason behind money. And so now the other thing that happens is the people on the staff who work with Jim, they know what Jim does. They have more respect for Jim. And they also know that if they behave like Jim, they'll get that level of acknowledgement and validation. So those are the three things that I would leave you with, which is, you know, first of all, the two division companies, sales and sales support, then know the need, share your problems, ask for answers, and then acknowledgement. Say thank you publicly and in detail. Yeah, I have to say that I really... Um, very supportive. Number two and three, for sure. Keeping the products relevant makes a lot of sense to me. I've never thought about it the way you represented it when I first heard this about the two, you know, the two um, division company and how the sales folks and the customer service folks, of course, they know the most about the customers and their needs and and what, you know, what doodad is missing off the product that they want or what color it should be and um, that everyone else should be, you know, really listening to them. So I think that's a great, great piece of advice for keeping the uh, you know, keeping the product relevant, know the need. I think too many organizations, too many executives feel like if they don't, if they share problems and they're, you know, they're, they're weak or they're, um, 
they're failing yeah. or something. It's a lot of ego, of course. How do you um, how do you respond to that? How do you help an executive who feels that they have to have all the answers understand that they don't have to have all the answers and that they'll actually be more respected when they are transparent and vulnerable and look to their folks for answers um, and that they understand the answers in the room and it doesn't have to be their answer? How do you help someone overcome that fear of saying, I don't know? Well, the first thing I would remind them is that you'll never see a job, uh, you'll, you'll never see a business plan uh, that says turn over $4 million in the first 10 years. But if that's all it costs you, you're lucky because you lose all your company knowledge, you lose your customers, and you lose your relationships. And then you go through a lot of false starts to replace that person. So if the second reason that people work is for acknowledgement, then you have to give them something to be acknowledged for. And when you say, hey, I recognize that you have a financial investment in this company. I recognize that you have a security investment in this company, and you're showing me that by just working here. So I'm going to respect you by saying the company needs you. We need your intelligence. You're smart. You can figure this out. Now, what happens is you make it fun, and you know, and and you'll see that morale goes way up after these meetings. I mean, even if you don't use their ideas, just the idea that they feel free to tell you what their ideas are, or to respond, or that they're being respected enough to being asked, and they're not treated, you know, like I, I forget what they say, something terrible about you throw manure on them and uh, keep them in the dark, right? <laughs> because they they have a need to know. It's a mushroom, the mushroom management approach, right? That that's not the right way. That will cause turnover faster than any place. And you have to remember something else. And that is the three people who started your company were in a garage or a roll up or a laundry room. And they knew every one of them that if they didn't make a sale, they were all going to be out of business. So there was no question that they had to come up with solutions. And so they worked with each other. They all needed to know a lot of stuff. And that's how they solved their problems. So what I'd say to those people is, it's not how you gain the entrepreneurial spirit, it's how you lost it. And part of the spirit is saying, hey, team, we got a real challenge here. How are we going to solve this one? Any ideas? That's what does it. I think it's great. It's just so much wisdom when you bring people together. And like you said, you never know who's going to have that answer. It could be the receptionist. It could be anybody in the organization. It could be the accountant. It could be anybody that comes up with that idea. I love the the footprints. I'm curious, though, for, for Barefoot, this is one of the questions I was thinking earlier that I don't, probably didn't have time to ask, but I think I do. How did you guys come up with the idea of a you know the Barefoot and all the different colors? Because that is very different, especially at the time you said you came along where everything was really much more formal and um, us taking everyone was more serious. And, and now it is fun to see. I go to, you know, go to the grocery store, or go to wineries, and they, everyone has fun names and fun labels. And it's really come a long way. And I, I think you guys have, you know, had a huge part in that. But when you got started, what was the idea for why Barefoot and why that logo and all the different colors? Okay, well, first of all, the logo was, um, you know, the same uh, snarky supermarket guy that kicked us out of the office the first time we went in. You know, we said to him, you know, what should the label look like? And he said, make the name the same as the logo. Put it in plain English and make it visible from four feet away. Okay. Use a symbol that she can identify with. And so 
we had that as a, you know as you know an order. Okay, solve this problem. Here it is. You know what the you know what the buyer said he wants. How do you solve that? So we started thinking about it, and we realized that there was a brand, an old brand that was called Barefoot that was 12 years before we came up with the foot and it had been off the market. And so we redesigned it and put it at the, at the, you know, inclined angle and everything made it look like a, an exclamation point. Um, but as far as the colors are concerned, one of the things that we didn't like about the wine business was that every, every wine varietal, every type of wine it looked the same, you know, and it was all about the label looking the same. And what we wanted to do was give people a color-coded way to tell the difference between, you know, a bottle of, say, uh, Chardonnay and a bottle of Sauvignon Blanc. So we chose blue for the Chardonnay and we chose green for the Sauvignon Blanc. And so we had a green cap, a green foot. We had uh, a, a green box um, and, uh, you know, a green foot on the box, all of that stuff was designed to be color coded. I think it's, it's brilliant. What was the name then before barefoot when you first showed up in the grocery store? We didn't have one. That was the oh. thing. We said, Hey, we've got all this wine and all this bottling services. We can give it to you any way you want. How do you want it? And of course that's part of the barefoot spirit, which is it's okay to ask questions and play dumb. I love that. I, I mean, love that you actually and, showed up in the grocery store to sell them something that didn't have a name or a design or anything. We didn't even have a size. That's great. <laughs> we you didn't have a size. It just says, how do you want it? You know, we'll, we'll do it any way you want it. I mean, the guy says, wow, nobody's ever asked us what we wanted before. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is definitely one way to go about it. That is fascinating. No, I think we're learning, we're learning a lot from you today, Michael. So thank you so much for anyone who is really in startup entrepreneurial mode or someone who is running an organization or a department or just a team. You can take your barefoot spirit outside of the entire culture of the organization if you don't have control of that, and you can implement it just on your team, even if it's three people, five people. You can have that same entrepreneurial barefoot spirit, um, and I think that's so important because that, I believe, will grow also once the rest of the organization starts to see the success of your team. Absolutely. You know, unfortunately, we've been all brainwashed by VCs who are saying, oh, yeah, scale fast, fail fast. You know, um, you, you got to have five hundred thousand dollars. You got to have two million dollars uh, and then you have a burn rate. Right. And uh, you know what kills businesses? They don't achieve a positive cash flow before they run out of the money that they borrowed or it was invested. That's what kills them. And so why not start slow? Why not make your mistakes in a small place? Why not learn by your mistakes? Or as they say in the music business, get your act together before you take your show on the road. Ah, I like that. Well, actually, I'm glad you brought it up, mistakes, because I want to ask you questions about success. And oftentimes mistakes are how we get to a point of being more successful. So, Michael, what is your definition of success, at least the definition you use today? It could be different than the one from 20 years ago, but I'd be interested in at least your current definition. Well, I like to say, make mistakes right. And what I mean by that is W-R-I-T-E, not just R-I-G-H-T. So make mistakes right means you're going to make mistakes, 
But you know, our success was built on the backs of mistakes. When we started our company, our contracts were only three pages long. When we sold our company, they were 37 pages long. Wow. That's how many mistakes we made. <laughs> but when I say when I when I say write, what I mean is write it down. You don't just write down what the mistake was, but you write down how you made the mistake, you write down what the miscommunication was, what the misconceptions were, what led to the mistake, and then here's the most important part. You list the number of documents that need to be changed, altered, or created to prevent that mistake from ever happening again. So that could be a sign on the wall, you know, it could be a label, uh, it could be uh, a, a, a policy, a procedure, a checklist, a sign-off sheet. It could be a lot of things, but they are all documents. So something gets written, and then the company gets better. The company gets the success of the company is built on the backs of its mistakes. So don't be afraid to make mistakes. Just make mistakes right. I love that. I think that's really great because a lot of people look at mistakes and dwell on them or look at them as failures. And they can be if you don't learn from them. Um, but you're, what you're saying here is that they're really mistakes are, are part of your success as long as you make them right. Exactly. You know, in a lot of companies, too, they scare people. If you make a mistake, we're going to fire you. But you see, part of the barefoot spirit is to give people permission to make mistakes. Now, if they make if they make a dumb mistake, you know, you've got to fire them. But if they make a mistake that's like a procedural mistake or a communications mistake, then that can be fixed. And so you encourage them to come forward with their mistake and to not only come forward with their mistake, but come forward with the documents that need changing. And when they do do that, when they make those changes, you say, hey, Mary made this incredible mistake the other day, but she's changed these documents and will never make it again at this company. Yeah, I like that because it's not only, I think a lot of people are definitely scared to admit when they make a mistake because the culture doesn't really, doesn't appreciate or even acknowledge positively mistakes. But when you say to an organization and the people in it that, not only is it okay to make mistakes, but we require or encourage or demand you let us know when that mistake happened with the solution so that it doesn't happen again. I think that's really empowering. Exactly, exactly. I think it was Malali over at Ford who said, uh, I'm not going to fire you if you make a mistake. I'm going to fire you if you hide a mistake. That's a really that you know what that's really smart because that's the problem is when people start hiding mistakes. That's where then you know how do you continue the, the cover up if it has to be or how big how big a deal could it possibly be? So the mistake itself is not is not egregious or fireable, but if you cover it up, that's when we get into trouble. So I think that's really smart. And uh, you know the other thing too is it happens in school. You know you get an A or an F. You know it happens on the ballpark. It happens in your, in you know, your upbringing, uh, you know, your peer group. The idea is that people today are so mistake adverse that they want to say, "Oh yeah, well that happened, but it's okay now. Don't worry about it." Right. But the, but the reason that you want to worry about it is because it's going to happen again. Yes. Yeah. You <laughs> and, can't just and sweep you, it under you the You just have the opportunity to see that it could happen at all. Right. And how do we prevent it from happening again? No, this is really great. I am super excited for the theatrical drama uh, coming this fall. So please definitely keep me posted and 
when that's coming Surely. out. I think I get your emails already, and I've got your books, both of them. So thank you so much for, for those gifts. I do appreciate that. And you have so much to share. So I definitely highly encourage everybody to check out what Michael and Bonnie are working on. Keep up with them. Uh, you've given us a great definition of success, which actually works well from a perspective of, I talked to guests a lot about failure, and it sounds like for you, failure, and you'll tell me if I'm wrong, is making that mistake and then trying to cover it up versus trying to learn from it. But is there a different definition or other ways of failure that you see? Well, I think you're, I think you're absolutely right. I think you got your finger right on it. Failure is when you let your ego get in the way. You don't want to admit that you've made a mistake. And so consequently, you try to ignore it or you push it under the rug or you try to, you know, clean your hands and put them behind you and say, I'm all ready for the next one. Well, no, you're not, because there's a lesson that you needed to learn. And success is, I mean, let's face it, I guess the simplest definition of success is you make more right decisions than wrong ones. Okay. But, yeah. but the way that you get to a point where you're making more right ones is you learn from the wrong ones. Absolutely. And then in that whole thing you were just saying about failure, and um, it made me think back to the whole thing of um, asking your employees and being transparent about what the problems are. If you don't ask them, I look at that almost the same way as a failure because you're sweeping the problem under the rug. Um, you're kind of wiping your hands of it going, I don't know how to fix this. I'll just deal with it later instead of saying there are people in my organization that know the problem solution and I should ask them no matter how I feel about it, no matter how, you know, it makes me feel. Uh, so I kind of, as you were talking about failure, I kind of went back to that idea of being open to acknowledging that you don't have the answer and that you need help. Exactly, exactly. Oh, this has been amazing. This went so quickly. I can't believe we've been talking for almost 40 minutes already. What's one last piece of advice or words of wisdom from Michael Houlihan that you would like to leave us with today? Well, I guess the advice that I give everybody is the same, and that is don't be afraid to start small, okay? Get your business going with a few customers, a few beta customers, and realize that you are going to make mistakes. Go out and apologize, correct it. Get your act together before you take your show on the road. Um, what kills a lot of businesses is the expansion mode because they don't understand the cost of sales. They understand the cost of goods, but not the cost of sales. And when you start small and you have a few customers, you'll see that a lot of companies fail because of their own success. They make sales, but they can't support the sales. They, they can't provide the customer service. And so you really need to learn, you know, what kind of customer service is really required here? What kind of education, ongoing contact is required in order to keep that sale going? Because we're not making one-time sales here. We're making every-time sales. Excellent. Thank you so much, Michael, for all of this. Like I said, I'm very excited to hear the theatrical drama this fall and look forward to speaking with you again. Oh, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure speaking with your community today. Thank you. Have a great day. Thanks for listening today. Tune in for our next episode. And in the meantime, you can get more resources at www.c-suiteresults.com. Make it a successful day.
Like what you just heard? Visit c-suiteradio.com. C-Suite Radio, turning the volume up on business. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.